they're in German, right? Those those songs that were on the radio. No, no, no. They are the original. So they're the English version. Also makes this musical like parts of the movie a little bit awkward because the songs are are um, telling something about the story, and so one of them has like a voiceover that's just talked um, with a translation, but you still hear the song in the background. So they didn't translate the songs really, just like a little bit wow. of text inserted. So so you're watching this movie and you're. Even as a kid, you have to be realizing what's going on on some level. And it's so interesting to me that you went on to become a translator as well as an author. Uh, do you feel like this experience had anything to do with that? Like you being interested in this line of work? Actually, I think so, yes. Especially the music, uh, because I'm very much influenced by song lyrics generally. And until today, I think I like the score more than the songs today of this soundtrack. But I still have the um, this one song, Man's Road, it's on, on a playlist all the time for writing for me because it also gets into this perspective of the unicorn traveling the road of the humans. Welcome, friends, to episode 231 of the Ink to Film podcast, where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm filmmaker James Bailey. And I'm writer Luke Elliott. And this week we discuss Rankin Bass's 1982 film, The Last Unicorn. And rejoining us this week in the lilac forest is Simone Heller. She is a translator and writer of science fiction and fantasy. Her work has been a finalist for a Hugo Award and the winner of the Yugi Foster Memorial Award. Welcome back, Simone. Hi. I'm so excited that you're back. Last week we got to we got to talk about a lot of different aspects of the Last Unicorn novel by Beagle, and um, this week we get to talk about the film. So I, I wanted to ask you, like, in, in terms of your enjoyment and your love of this project, does the film hold as special of a place as the as the novel, Simone? Yeah, I think so. So it's um, one of my childhood memories seeing this film in Germany. It's actually a Christmas movie, so it's uh, it has been. Wow. Um, it has been on TV always on Christmas, but that's not how I remember it. It's really just one of the first real fantasy animation films I saw. And so a lot of interesting connections that I was drawing from my research to this film and Germany. Apparently, like the score was only released in Germany. It wasn't released in the US. You couldn't get this score in the in the States. So it's an American made film and all the art was in animation was done by a Japanese studio. So a lot of like different international things happening there. We've gotten to talk about Rankin Bass before with Return of the King and then also for the Red, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in the main feed. Interestingly enough, they do Rankin Bass do create a lot of Christmas movies in general. So it's funny that this one ended up slotting into a Christmas movie in Germany. Yeah, absolutely. It has it's, the topic is not really calling for that. So I never understood it, but it was really a little bit after my time, I think, uh, sent every year. So a lot of people remember it as a Christmas movie, I think. Yeah, it's got a big cult following. And, and I don't think you'd seen this, right, Luke? Um, I want to hear your thoughts. Like, where, where were you at with this? So I've mentioned a few times on the podcast before about how I have a special place in my heart for The Hobbit by Rankin Bass. That, for me, I think sounds like it was a similar kind of movie because it was one of the first fantasy animations and, and films that I really latched onto. I don't know if it was the first one I saw, but it's one of the ones that we had on VHS, and I used to play it over and over and over again. 
and the visual style is very similar to this mm-hmm. one. Um, there's just a certain look to like the humans and the monsters and the way they 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 create things that is very similar. And uh, I was so I feel nostalgic for this movie because it evokes that time, even though I'd never seen it before. Um, but yeah, I mean, this it was it was a very interesting experience. Um, I have a lot of thoughts, but uh, Simone, I wanted to ask you, what was your first experience with this material? Was it the book or the or the movie? And did one lead you to the other? I'm actually not quite sure anymore. I guess it was the movie. Because if I think back, I was a little bit too um, small to read the book when the movie came out first. And I also had it on VHS. So it was one of the first VHS tapes in our household. And I think I read the book afterwards when it was a little bit more age appropriate. (laughs) That's cool. I mean, and, and honestly, this movie is really faithful as far as what actually happens in it. So I I guess the main experience one would have if the movie leads them to the book is just the difference in language, right? Like, because so much of that language we talked about last week isn't, I mean, like, some lines that the characters say is present, but a lot of the the gorgeous description by Beagle um, is sort of instead replaced by gorgeous animation. Um, But that's like one of the key differences I see in, do you have any memory of, of what that experience is like, like going from one to the other? I, I think I'm actually amazed that a lot of the language made it into the movie because still, as you said, in the dialogue, the characters have this certain tone and you can really hear the book in the movie still, I think. Yeah, whenever they speak a direct line, <laughs> I could definitely tell. <laughs> uh, still, the language is just so amazing in the book that this really blew me away and it was a different on a different level. They they kept a lot of the jokes as well, right? Like a lot of the yeah. th- like small things that I expected would get cut. They kind of kept and it kept this the same kind of tone in a way. And and I like that it they went dark with the film as well because it is like I can see this scaring some kids. Like certain scenes, certain like creature designs. Um, I I remember like recent just recently I was talking about James and the Giant Peach and how that rhino coming out of the clouds. Uh, scared the hell out of me as a kid and it, it stuck with me and like this bowl absolutely would have done the same thing <laughs> yeah absolutely I think yeah I also remember that the harpy was pretty scary to me when I yeah. watched it for the first times I love talking about animation so getting the chance to do that is so much fun and there's there's such a cool lineage with this animation here uh, that goes until the present day and some some things we've touched on before so first I'll talk about the fact that Beagle wrote this this film screenplay, so you know that that's always very cool when you get to see an author also come in and write the screenplay, and hopefully help the directors or the production company deliver on the same vision. Um, and I think that's clear that that was the case. But a lot of interesting things go on here. Like I, I heard that Beagle did not want to work with Rankin Bass. It was the last animation studio he wanted to work with, and uh, like he, it was out of his hands. The the producers signed a deal. And when Beagle heard, he was horrified and he, he didn't want to work with Rankin Bass. Wow. But I guess in meeting with them, he realized like they could they could do sort of execute on his vision and, and get what he wanted to get done. Beagle has even said that he prefers The Last Unicorn to another animated film he worked on, which was J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, uh, the, the Ralph Bakshi version. So like to compare, he, he clearly enjoys this film and is happy that he worked with them. But there is some hesitancy there in the first place. Well, and we covered that one, um, and I think it's on the main feed now. So if you want to go back and, and, and check it out, we uh, we both had mixed feelings about that about that Bakshi version. Um, but it is interesting that 
Rankin Bass would do the follow up to that movie with the Return of the King. Um, so I wonder if that I guess I don't know my timeline, <laughs> but I'm like, I'm wondering if that if he had seen their version of Return of the King, which I think was pretty bad. And it's the worst thing I've seen from them, probably. And I wonder if that was affecting his opinion of the studio. And, and maybe he was worried if they're going to butcher my stuff like they did the Return of the King. Yeah, it is possible. Looking here, I see that Return of the King came out in 1980 and The Hobbit came out in 1977. So, you know, he was reacting maybe potentially to their past work and of fantasy specifically. Yeah. I mean, yeah, The Hobbit, that gives me faith. The Return of the King, not so much. So I can see why maybe he was a little mixed and and would worry. And, And this also is part of a larger pattern that we've seen of him not being in control of some of these creative decisions. And I'm wondering, if does this go back to that same guy he's working with, like that manager? I don't think so. I think this was a producer and, and it's somebody separate. Yeah, I think yeah, the manager just, came in later. Okay. But like, it's like, how does, why does this keep happening? You know how it is when a studio buys the rights to, a, you know, the option a book and then it's kind of out of the writer's hands at times. Yeah. I guess I'm just frustrated on his behalf, right? As, as, as a writer, it's like, you don't want to hear about someone not having control of this kind of stuff. And, and it seems like that's been a pattern for him, specifically with The Last Unicorn. So I'm really glad that, it, you know, we talked about this last week, but it appears that he has regained all of these rights and, and it seems like they're working on some new stuff related to it. Um, I think I even heard something about a new Last Unicorn animation being produced. If, if I'm... I think I did see uh, something mentioned about that as well. And I also I saw something about live action that I'll get into here in a little bit. But l- let me tell you some more about like Beagle and the production of the film and then also the animation studio, which I really want to dig into. Wait, real quick. Let me, let me stop you. It's me opening up my Red Bull. <laughs> nice. I decided would be appropriate for this episode. <laughs> I thought you were cracking a cold one, cracking a beer. <laughs> 10 a.m. over there for you. Uh, no, it's a little early for that, but it's the perfect time for a Red Bull. <laughs> yeah. Jumping into the production of this, uh, Beagle stated that there had been interest in creating a film based on the book early on. Uh, He believed that animated was the only way to go with regard to the film and never thought about live action. So when Arthur Rankin Jr. and Jules Bass of Rankin Bass approached Michael Chase Walker, the producer we're talking about. um, And like I said, it was kind of out of his hands. Beagle found out and he was horrified and threatened to pull out of the project. That's how that's how much he was not okay with the uh, the, you know, I, and I kind of get it. But then he ended up doing the screenplay, it sounds like. So he ended up doing it. Yeah. And um, Beagle stated that he's come to feel that the film is actually a good deal more than I had originally credited. There is some lovely design work. The Japanese artists who did the concepts and coloring were very good. And the voice actors do a superb job in bringing my characters to life. So, you know, I think that is kind of one of the standout things for me is the animation in this, especially for the time period, was just like incredible. And uh, we talked with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, like the sort of the, the, the machinery that they use with different plates to, to use that panning technique. And you can make like you can sort of push through different layers that they create on these panels of glass with the camera. And, you know, that was definitely being used as well as newer technology and and. It makes for a really cinematic looking animation, right? When you have to do it hand drawn and you're not having to draw every frame when you can manipulate different layers. I thought I saw some of that layer stuff going on uh, now that I know to look for it. So it's cool to hear that it is there. Yeah. So the animation studio that Rankin Bass worked with often and on this was Topcraft. And this is kind of a legendary, uh, kind of a legendary studio within the, the Japanese lineage of, of animation. So Toei is is and and always has been kind of one of the largest uh, animation studios, and so 
Topcraft was created by former animation producer at Toei, Toru Hara. It was famous for the production of Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind and for hand-drawn animation titles for by Rankin Bass Productions. So Miyazaki came and employed this, this animation studio when he directed Nausicaa, which is really interesting because this animation studio would eventually go bankrupt and dissolve in 1985, splitting essentially splitting the studio in half. Hayao Miyazaki, Toshio Suzuki, and Isao Takahata formed Studio Ghibli, which we've talked about some of this before. Sounding familiar. And the Ghibli uh, project that we did was Howl's Moving Castle way back in season one, a million years ago at the start of this podcast. (laughs) Right. A great project, too. I loved loved covering it. And and Miyazaki's a master. We've talked about it many times. And just like what Ghibli means for for animation in, in Japan. Topcraft's founder, the person who created Toru Hara that I was talking about, became the first manager at Studio Ghibli as well. Topcraft's animators also, like the other half, later formed a studio called Pacific Animation Corporation to to continue working with Rankin Bass on television shows like Thundercats and Silverhawks. (laughs) How about that? I watched Thundercats growing up. Of course, yeah. Eventually, Pacific Animation was bought by Walt Disney and it became Walt Disney Animation Japan. And then some of the animators went to work for Studio Perio and some other studios working on things as recent as like Naruto and Bleach. Japanese animation is a, is in sort of a category of its own. Like we have some amazing animation in, in the States. And I think that a lot of people try to get on the same level as, as some of these Japanese studios. But they have a certain style that's very much their yeah. own. They kind of set the standard, it feels like. Yeah. And in the way that they were sort of like importing animation it just like draws a path that we as americans at least and maybe the entire world you know started watching japanese hand-drawn animation at an early time period and it's just led to the rise of animation and anime and us being accustomed to that and some of the like those ghibli films like transcend the the medium of animation and people you know people who don't watch animation or don't watch anime specifically out of japan are like familiar and love those films well and i want to ask simone like is are those movies that you've seen? Do you like uh, Studio Ghibli stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They are also big over here. So okay. it's more the most the biggest problem I think is that they are categorized as children's movies all the time. Everything animated, but I think that's also a worldwide problem, at least outside of yeah. Asia. I think. Yeah, it's. I think it's starting to sort of get it get a name for itself in in some of the more mature content, but. Anime really is pushing the forefront of that. Like the Japanese anime is why people are starting to think of animation as not quite for always for children. There, of course, is stuff that's anime and animated for children. But, you know, as a medium, I always stand very firmly that like we shouldn't consider it a genre. That's another thing that bothers me is oftentimes Mm -hmm. people talk about animation as a genre. And I'm like, that makes no it's a medium. It's a different It's a different way to present every genre. It's a similar conversation to comics, right? Like I feel like yeah. comics says the same the same thing all the time, where everyone assumes it's for kids and it, they call it a genre, and it's really not. It's a medium. So I mean, yeah, that's a good point, a good distinction to make. Topcraft also worked on The Hobbit, which you love. So yep. just so you know, it's Japanese animated. Um, the Return of the King in nineteen seven in nineteen eighty, I believe. Uh, the Stingiest Man in the Town, Frosty's Winter Wonderland, and other cell animated projects for Rankin Bass. I think I've seen the Frosty Frosty one, if that's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's that that the one that I think most people, if you've seen those Christmas movies, have seen. So yeah, that's a bit about the the animation studio and how it how influential it was, and and what a time period this was when this movie was coming out, and it was sort of the end of Topcraft 
turning into what would be seen as some of the more modern animation studios that are still going today. And I, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, I think that was the standout thing to me was was the animation and, and the voice acting. I thought the cast was pretty incredible. I, yeah, I was struck by the cast. Yeah, you have the likes of Alan Arkin, Jeff Bridges, Mia Farrow, um, Christopher Lee, Angela Lansbury, like just like legendary people. And it was, you know, it was in the early 80s. So, you know, Jeff Bridges isn't the massive name that he is now. And I didn't recognize his voice. I I, I had to look up who he was portraying because, um, yeah, he and he ends up being Prince Lear. Right. And when he speaks, I'm like, that's Jeff Bridges. Like, I, I thought, you know, he has a very distinctive voice and, and I, I wasn't able to place it, but he must have been young. Mia Farrow, definitely the biggest standout because she somehow evokes exactly what I think a unicorn would sound like. You know what I mean? This sort of like ethereal and, and like the immortal side of it as well, like sort of able to be removed, but also sounding compassionate. And I thought she nailed that. I, I have seen the German dub, I must say. So um, mm-hmm. the interesting thing about that is that, um, of course, all the speakers are German, um, apart from Christopher Lee, who did his own dub in German because he also speaks wow. German fluently. And this is really a cool effect because you can hear a very slight accent, but I could never place it as a kid. And he had just this very, very distinct way of speaking that's kind of burned itself into my brain. I, I love that, that that's the case. I, I saw that online and I was like, what a what a uh, Christopher Lee thing to do. He's so... He's so into his craft. And I read some other like stories that sound like myth at this point about this, the production of this and how seriously he takes a lot of it Um, because he he is, you know, acting royalty and the fact that he would do the German dub and and like take it this seriously. I'll I'll give you some examples. He uh, showed up for the recording sessions armed with his own copy of the book with several places marked to indicate that must not, in his opinion, be omitted. (laughs) <laughs> this is similar behavior to how he was on The Fellowship of the Ring and its sequels, where he showed up on set with, with the book, with stickers all over it to make sure that they stuck to the fidelity of the novels. I mean, what a, what a legend. I, you know, I was so happy to hear his voice again. Anytime I can, I can get more Christopher Lee is a good time, so I was happy for that. And I'm so glad that he's apparently in your version as well, Simone. Uh, that's awesome to hear. You've seen the English version, I believe? No, I didn't. So, um, it's have you only... never seen this no, English version? No, it was never. Oh wow! It's it's actually pretty hard to get um, English versions of films in Germany. Generally, it's wow. become better. But for example, on Amazon, there is often no original um, audio available. It's just the German dub. And also for movies in cinemas, if you don't live in a really big city, um, there might be like one showing of a, of a movie in the original audio, and the rest is the dub. So. Wow, that's awesome. Like, I, I would have thought that in a similar, like, you would have a lot of subtitled films if they if they were worried about translation and things like that. That's that's interesting. No, Germany is really well known for its big um, dubbing industry. So that's really, we get everything dubbed. There is, subtitles are not really a thing here. Do you like that or would you prefer the original with subtitles, regardless of language? I actually like subtitles because I, I prefer to hear the original actors. But I must say that especially in the age of like the last unicorn um the dubbing was pretty good so there was really a lot of work going into it it might have changed a little bit today because simply they sped up the whole process a lot but uh, yeah it was pretty good 
what does anything stand out to you as far as performances or things we didn't you know we saw the english version so anything stand out to you that we missed in the german version <laughs> so um apart from christopher lee which is just the thing that i adore in this movie most i think um the the butterfly i think is also um some kind of comedian in the english version and it's the same in german so they chose a german like singer and comedian who just does this a little bit freestyle i think <laughs> so it's just fun so the butterfly was funny in our version so i could i could see how that would <laughs> you bring in a comedian that's that's perfect just to just to give one more little legendary story about christopher lee apparently when beagle showed up to a recording session um during the making of this film christopher lee was recording his his king haggard monologue and um about how unicorns brought him happiness and then after he got out of the, the this booth he went up to beagle and begged for his approval of his vocal performance offering to record it again if the author found it unsatisfactory <laughs> nice <laughs> so the score and you know the soundtrack the songs that were created for this i think are are notable as there are a lot of them and they're also you know i i found myself singing them afterwards so they you know they're earworms yeah. um in 2010 Jules Bass of you know, Rankin Bass, the Bass section of that, <laughs> revealed that Jeff Bridges called him out of the blue, volunteered to do this movie for free, and recommended his friend Jimmy Webb for the soundtrack. And wow. Jimmy Webb would go on to compose and arrange everything for the, for the American version of this film, at least. Um, he also got the, the uh, group America, who were known for their song, A Horse With No Name to uh perform some of the some of the songs and then also the london symphony orchestra i had a yeah i was on spotify looking for the soundtrack to this thing and a, a song called the last unicorn by a group called america came up and i was like this can't be real this can't be the real one <laughs> i listened to it and i'm like i don't know sounds pretty authentic That's and the one. i had to look it up to see that it was the one that what a what an interesting name for a band <laughs> So the, the album was never released in the States, as I said before. It was released in Germany and actually was one of the best-selling albums of 1983 in Germany. Wow. So, yeah, I had this album and it was the first LP I ever got for myself with my own money. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, it was pretty big. I think I could even in my small town, it was just available in the like electronics shop. <laughs> wow. So it was massive. Definitely huge over there. I think one of the things I loved about The Hobbit uh, that they did was also the music so that that, that is a, a sort of pattern for them because I yeah there are so many songs in that 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 definitely made me gravitate towards it even as it is like a darker kind of material like a little kid can be like well I know a good song's coming up so I can wait for the song I, I remember them being on radio actually so I think <clears throat> most of all the title song of course they're in German right those those songs that were on the radio no 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 they are the original so they're the English version also makes this musical like parts of the movie a little bit awkward because the songs are are um, telling something about the story and so one of them has like a voiceover that's just talked um, wow. with a translation but you still hear the song in the background so they didn't translate the songs really just like a little bit wow. of text inserted so it did super well and it was english and released in germany that's that's interesting so so you're watching this movie and you're even as a kid you have to be realizing what's going on on some level and it's so interesting to me that you went on to become a translator as well as an author uh do you feel like this experience had anything to do with that like you being interested in this line of work Actually, I think so, yes, especially the music, uh, because I'm very much influenced by song lyrics generally. 
And until today, I think I like the score more than the songs today of this soundtrack. But I still have the um, this one song, Man's Road. It's on, on a playlist all the time for writing for me because it also gets into this perspective of the unicorn traveling the road of the humans. Um, and I think that's just such an interesting perspective to take for a song to lead us on this road. So That's so cool. I, I mean, I love that we did this project and we're getting into like why you became a translator. <laughs> Didn't even plan it this way, but it worked out really well. It's very cool. Um, you know, uh, it just seems like this is the perfect project to have you on for. <laughs> yeah, true. I mean, I really wanted to understand the songs because I liked them so much. So I kept looking up the birds because it's really difficult if you have only like a little bit or even none English at school and try to find out what it means. So, yeah. When, when did you start first learning English? Uh, I, I think I knew a few, few words from my mom. So she taught me like colors and numbers and stuff like that. And she also listened to a lot of like English, American folk music or folk rock. And I knew a few words, but then later um, in Germany, you generally start learning English in uh, sixth grade. That would be like maybe, yeah, 10, 11, 12 years around this age. We, you know, we're not very good at learning other languages in America and, and, and being taught in schools. <laughs> yeah, we do a little bit. I did, I did a little Spanish, but I'm not. I'm far from fluent. Uh, same. I'm like, I, I took many years of French too, and you know, not using it, I think it goes away pretty quickly. That's the thing, just not using it. Yeah. Luke talked last week about how Beagle had the the rights of this taken away from him in, in certain ways, and the the fight to get that back. There was actually contractual disputes with the film, and Beagle received no compensation for the sale of any of the original DVDs or VHSs of this film. Um, a 25th anniversary edition of this movie was released by Lionsgate in 2007, and I think he started making money on it then, but that's really wow. unfortunate to note as well. Again, there's just this pattern. I don't know what it is. That's that's so frustrating. Yeah, and, a, and so the first US DVD that was released was like a pan and scan, which I've talked about a little bit before, but... Because four by three was what TVs were, um, they were having to like decide on a widescreen sixteen by nine frame what is important, and they they literally pan over to it within the frame, and so there's like additional uh. movement, and it's weird. So that was the original release in the U.S., um, and I guess the German video and audio masters were like the ones that they used to to create the 25th anniversary on DVD, so that you could get that widescreen format, and. I, there's a there's a bunch of you know we can get really deep into this but I guess there's like they in the U.S. they edited out swear words and maybe some nudity and some other things like that and because of that the the film played like four percent faster so the audio was like higher pitched so a lot of people know this film as like everyone speaks like an octave higher or something like that. Wow. And then that must not be the version we saw though. I, no no no. It must have been a re-release in 2011. Eventually they. They released a Blu-ray edition that was like back to theatrical cut, swearing, kept in everything at normal speed and everything like that. So we saw the the original cut. I wonder if that affected this film's legacy in the States some, right? Had I don't to. know. I, I It has a cult following. I think it has a cult following all over the world. Despite so, that, it seems yeah. like not, you know, not because. 
Exactly. Yeah. So mostly I'm not going to read a synopsis because it's very similar to the last week's description. You'll have to listen to last week if you want to hear an in-depth plot description. (laughs) But yeah, this is very, this is very similar. Yeah. That tends to be the best way to listen to these projects anyway. So you get the full context. (laughs) But uh, so we'll start off here with the unicorn learning from the two hunters and the butterfly that she's the last of her kind. And she sets out to find the unicorns to save them from the Red Bull. And then we'll go up until the point that we meet Molly Grew who is with Captain Cully and their sort of Robin Hood-esque band of people. There was this opening scene with the lilac forest, right? And I really recognize that's what we're doing. And and I there's an interesting thing where they keep switching between the animation style and then these like static, more our classical style depictions of like a unicorn. That's, I think, the unicorn tapestry, like a callback to this artwork, the tapestries that are French, Dutch, something of the... 15th century that's like a hunt for a unicorn and the pictures are almost the same so if you look that up the unicorn tapestries or the hunt for the unicorn you will see where this come from so I like this intro a lot because it's a callback to this artwork and that puts it in a historical perspective in a way so yeah that is very cool or I thought it is this storification mythification thing that was also going on in the novel somehow I loved it. It was like a montage of more classical or like mythic feeling stories that would then like inform it. And it was it was striking because it was like this montage over credit. So it was like a title sequence. And then it was that different animation. Um, and it was like I always find this fascinating because nowadays we have to think a lot about because we see everything on screens and it used to be film. And when you push in on when you like get closer in a digital image, you start to get noise, you start to get it starts to look lower resolution. And um, this clearly was like some massive painting or something that someone created. And then they just got the camera really close to it and like found certain shots and panned all over it to show, or, or, you know, just got like snapshots that would fade in and fade out. And it was, it was cool because you can get that close and you don't lose any sort of quality in the image. Wow. Yeah. I guess I didn't even realize they were having to do all of that. So I wanted to ask about the design of the unicorn itself and how we feel about it. I I thought it was cool. It's definitely taking a unicorn, making it feminine. To me, she felt very majestic and sort of ethereal and beyond the design of just like a horse, right? Like this felt more like a fantastical being. Yeah, I was paying attention to this difference to a horse. And for me, I think, I mean, she's described as super beautiful in the novel too, but it's a little bit on the, I don't know, Barbie horse side of things for me. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. <laughs> so I had this feeling that you have in you have in the novel this, that humans can't see uh, the unicorn. And I think they did a little bit of that, added some extra magic so that we can see it. Like also when the, the horn does something and it goes bing. <laughs> Yeah, so, that's true. <laughs> thought it was a bit, little bit too much. I noticed that it, there was like a sort of soft edges, like fluid motion to it, rather than it. It sort of felt like like fluid, like liquid when it would move sometimes, which sort of I, I don't know how to describe it other than that. But it, it, you know, it was striking because the other I think people and characters in the film weren't weren't animated in that same way. Sort of maybe. Maybe they even, you know, normally in in animation, you do like somewhere between 12 and 24 frames and 24 would be like when you're really trying to show the detail of every single, every single frame. And 
Usually it's around 12. So it may be in this, in this situation when they would animate the unicorn, they did a higher interval of, of frames that they would show for the unicorn. So it would seem more fluid when it would move. That's just a guess. I have no idea if that's true. <laughs> I could see that. I, I do. I, I agree with what you're saying, Simone, because like on one hand, at times I thought it looked great. And then at other times, I think it's maybe like close ups of the face when she's speaking. It does kind of get that a little bit Barbie like like uh, it almost looks like a toy that like they're trying to sell to young girls or something. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I was a little I guess I, I, I could see both sides of that. You know, at times it works and at times not so much. The fluidity is very interesting because I think it evokes either it looks like there is always some kind of a wind in her hair or even evokes the ocean that's so important later in the story, I think. So that's super interesting. Yeah. Did you both see any of the there's almost like a fog every once in a while in front of the the unicorn as well? Because that was something I was noticing. And, and I I think it was I'm pretty certain it was intentional. It wasn't like an artifact that was left over. But I, I kept it would almost seem like the, the unicorn was out of focus and then would mm. come to focus because of there like, was some odd things with the focus. So uh, you were talking about this remaster getting made and, and, and some of these changes in form. And I was wondering if, if some of these little things are artifacts of the original or it not being designed for this kind of format. <laughs> I think they would they they went back to the original masters for the version that we saw. So there shouldn't be anything like that. Although if it was just restored masters it's possible that something happened in the in the process of preserving them or something like that. Mm. But I, I don't think that there's a lot of that going on. Well, let's talk about the night carnival. I want to move to that because I this is where I saw the most fantastical uh, sort of creatures. Um, and that was reminding me a lot of The Hobbit, the design elements of these of these beings. Even even the dragon reminds me of the Smaug a little bit. Um, there's also the world serpent. Um, it, it was a cool display of um, what that could look like, right? Because when you're reading a book, you have to imagine that. And, and that's one of the great things about the visual medium is when someone can pull off something fantastical. So I really liked seeing all of these different creatures brought to life. The harpy was a choice. Um, it was <laughs> uh, quite... Sure was. Yeah, quite... I don't know. <laughs> um, this I assume is this, this this was what was censored. If you haven't seen it, the harpy has three large sort of pendulous breasts that are <laughs> in this animation, and um, yeah, I can imagine American. Uh, you know, uh, they're trying to decide what to leave in the movie, and they're looking at this and going, "We can't put this on TV," um, because I, I think famously Americans, uh, especially at the time, were a little more prudish, a little more, uh, you know, worried about putting nudity out there that their kids would see, um, and it, you know that that shows different cultures, right? Like how how we feel about that, and and yeah, I don't know. Well, it's interesting too because I know that typically Japanese culture is a little more conservative as well, and in, in that sort of thing, whereas I think more European countries are. are uh, it normalized nudity and things like that, which the nudity of the unic of Amalthea when she becomes uh, was was something that I was like, okay, that's not pushing the line. The, the, yeah, I thought the, it was pretty tasteful. Yeah, it wasn't anything weird to me. But the this harpy, it like you said, it's a decision, and I, maybe they were trying to go back to some sort of roots of you know the Greek mythology or whatever so. it comes from. But to have three specifically is like a very like total recall moment yeah, where everybody's like, okay, there's, <laughs> there's three breasts here. Like you can't not notice that something's a little different. It's also <laughs> totally different from the novel, I think. So it's not from there because in the novel there is this this metallic thing going on and that's completely missing here. Like the wings of metal or bronze or something. 
Yeah, you're right. And that would have been interesting to see. Yeah, it, it, it was a decision, you know, and there's a couple decisions made that I was kind of a head scratcher for me. Um, and, and we follow this up. This is I'm jumping ahead a little bit. But since we're talking about some of these animation decisions, there's this tree sequence that happens with Schmendrick where he is sort of smothered by the cleavage of a tree. And I'm like, I don't remember this in the novel. Um, <laughs> it seems like it was just added. It 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 felt out of place to me. I'm like, what what is happening? Why is this in the movie? Um, does anybody, anybody have any thoughts on that? Any, any theories? <laughs> I, I thought it was funny. Uh, you know, I thought it was like maybe maybe that's what the 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 goal was there to sort of make a make a funny moment. And you know, we get to see Schmendrick. It was kind of funny, but also kind of just kind of weird. It is a little weird. It's also in the book somehow. So there is this tree scene with an elm tree uh, that falls in love with him. But it's very short and there is no smothering action or something yeah, going Yeah, I remember the, the tree. There was a tree. And, and I remember there was some sort of emotional thing. So, yeah, I, I guess I didn't remember this, this smothering bit. And it sounds like that was how they decided to evoke that that love i guess something interesting that i was thinking about too is uh this is a fantasy story which typically is very european in nature uh like historically at least um and you're thinking medieval sort of dragon and we have what is depicted as more of an eastern style dragon the sort of you know the the western dragon is more four legs wings um, fire-breathing dragon kind of thing. And what we get is the serpent, the sort of sky serpent look of, of an Eastern dragon. I wonder if that was the animation studio just saying, like, this is the kind of dragon we're going to make because they're Japanese. Or if that was, you know, direction from Rankin-Bass. Like, you know, where where does that come from? Because it's seen as normally more medieval European uh, fantasy. Mm. Yeah, I noticed that too. Also, there is the second dragon in the Midnight Carnival. There is the... Kind of an octo dragon. He has this tentacles yeah. going on. So that was also an interesting yeah. choice. So I'm, I'll go ahead and introduce this here. This and this is something that affected my entire watch. I as soon as Schmendrick is introduced, I kept thinking about our conversation last week and how we talked about how he kind of feels like he's making some commentary, Beagle, about what it's like to be a writer and to have and to have some doubt in your ability. And so for the first time watching this, I started to view Schmendrick as a self-insert for Beagle a little bit. I started imagining that the, this character in some ways represents Beagle. And that shined a whole new light on Schmendrick and, and the way he operates. Not, not only is he doubting his ability, but he he is he seemingly has no idea where it comes from, right? Like he's like he doesn't understand his magic. He can't evoke it at a at on command. It just kind of comes to him and goes from him um, as it decides. And he he sort of denies ownership of a lot of things. Um, so like later on, when she's turned into the girl, and uh, Molly Guru is like, you know, why did you turn her into a human? And he's like, the, the magic just did it. I don't know. And so that made me think about like a writer saying like, I don't know why I chose that. It just came to me that the writing was flowing through me. I don't know. Some writers, like you'll hear them talk about this a lot and they kind of um, mythologize the creative process and view it as almost magical. And I'm wondering if, if like, is that how Beagle viewed his own creativity? Did he feel like he didn't have control over it? Um, and I don't know. I went down this whole rabbit hole and, and like every time Schmendrick was saying something, I was thinking about Beagle trying to comment on his creative process. Did, did, did you view 
Schmendrick in that way, Simone? Because I know you're the one who sort of brought this reading to my attention last week. And is that how you view Schmendrick? A little bit, yeah. So I think this whole thing that he needs to get let control go of his craft to make it happen in a authentic way, I think that's pretty much an artistic viewpoint or a writing viewpoint. Because always when he says magic, uh, do as you will, something cool happens, or at least something <laughs> big happens. <laughs> do you say that before you sit down to write, Simone? Magic, do as you will. and then you just <laughs> No, no, I'm a control person. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work that way for me either, unfortunately. <laughs> if I say magic, do what you will, I just won't write anything. <laughs> I, would, I would get stuck, you know. <laughs> okay, so this next part here, uh, I think we should talk about when the unicorn and the, the gang are nearing King Haggard's castle and they're attacked by the Red Bull all the way up until Haggard confronts Amalthea talking about the location of the unicorns and how she doesn't have magic in her eyes anymore. So I, let's, I want to talk about Molly Grew. So Molly Grew shows up in the story for the first time and I wasn't even sure. I was like, are they going to cut Molly Grew? It doesn't seem like they can. I was a little worried about that as well. Um, but then she comes to, she kind of goes away, but then comes back, which I think also happens in the book. So, um, and, and when that happened, I was like, no, they're sticking. Like that was my one point where I was like, if Molly Grew is in this story, like she is in the book, then they're going to, continue to be really faithful and, and they were um but i wanted to ask about her role in this story because again she she's this interesting character at times she feels like a realist she seems kind of like the audience stand-in and and it, she'll come to some of these characters and say like hey <laughs> you should pay attention to this or you're 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 uh you're being full of yourself or you're not realizing what damage you've done like she's she's kind of the conscience in some ways um, for some characters, she she reels in Schmendrick. She goes to the unicorn um, and, and talks to her about like, oh, you don't you know realize what you're doing to Prince Lear. See, she is completely unmagic compared to everybody else in the story. She has not one ounce of magic. So, and that could also be kind of an audience thing, right? She's like quote unquote normal, um, and her perspective on all these like magical things going on. I she is very um, upset at the unicorn when she first meets her and she says like how dare you wait until i am what i am now why weren't you here i think she says like 20 years ago or something and i wanted to ask you about that like why why does she say that um it's i guess i have some theories but i want to know your thoughts on that simone Why, why does molly grew get so upset that the unicorn is coming to her now and not when she was younger i think it's a lot about the role of women and the picture of women especially in literature like you either a crone or um somehow yeah nastily said used up or you're innocent and young and fresh and she is not that anymore she was living with Kali or even married to him and she is i don't think we get so many um older women especially in in this time the movie and the novel were made and so that's super interesting to have a character really um address this kind of thing yeah, she's in between, right? And she's not, she is an unusual female character, and in, in especially in this time frame, in the fact that she's not anyone's love interest, um, but she's also not this old crone. She's a good character who's helping our, our main characters out. Yeah, she is a pretty unique um, role here from what we're, um, and yeah, that, that actually, that does make me really like the way that she's used. She is someone's love interest. But then the story breaks that on purpose to say, like, that's not the role of, you know, of women. It doesn't have to be the role of women as it has been in so many fantasy stories. So, I mean, they didn't like develop a plot where Schmendrick and Molly end up becoming 
romantic partners, which like I, I could totally see somebody deciding to introduce as they're trying to define Molly's role. In the film, there's a little bit of like, they seem very close at the end. That's true. When it, they're leaving. Slight hint, but. Which is kind of maybe like a of the time kind of thing they wanted people to think like, maybe they do get together. But uh, I prefer to think that they don't. Yeah. And um, well, you know, I, I've mentioned this before, but I am a big proponent of more platonic friendships between men and women in, in our media and how especially in films, it feels pretty rare to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, how about the design of the Red Bull? Yeah, the Red Bull. Uh, as I take a sip on my Red Bull and honestly, I'm looking at it and it's like it's not that far off. The little Red Bulls they have on this can. Um, yep. I thought it was really cool, like almost almost like wrapped in a, in a it almost felt like flames at times, oh, yeah. Um, yeah. but it's also kind of not flames. Like I, we don't see a lot of stuff burning. I read a description that that literally called it a monstrous fire elemental. Okay, yeah. So it they does. went as far nice. as to say that, but I don't know that I, I don't know that I agree with that. But it looks like it could be. Yeah, it's cool. They do a scary creature design, honestly, Rankin Bass, because that's one of the things that stands out from the Hobbit. Like their creature design is frightening, and to see it here in the bull, um, in the book version, I was wondering why a bull. Where does this come from? But uh, this feels like this bull is some legendary being, and maybe it is, that I'm just not super aware of. And um, they were able to bring it to life and make it frightening and powerful and everything that I would want, I think, from the, from the Red Bull. I think it made more sense to me to see it visually, too, where like, I was like, okay, I don't get why the bull is just chasing the unicorns. Why couldn't they run in another direction? And I guess visu- seeing it visually and understanding that he's like sort of jumping in front of their path to like like lead them i forget what the word they used was but they were like it was drive like leading them into them. the sea drive them maybe something like that and it has to do with like it's not physically chasing them straight towards the water it's just impeding any sort of getting away until you're cornered it yeah. up against it well and it's got two horns versus their one i don't know if that's somehow meaningful oh yeah <laughs> like, like they kind of seem like they could be of a similar uh lineage maybe that's what he's getting at right like they're both horned be- beasts in some way and maybe maybe they're yeah that that sets them at odds against each other in some sort of cosmic sense Two sides of the same thing, you know, because right. the where the unicorn is so um, small and dainty, the bull is really like bulky yeah. and heavy, and it's a totally different style. Yeah. And the unicorn is almost like passive because it takes the unicorn standing up to the bull before it'll back down. Where and the, it seems like the bull is the exact opposite of that, right? Like very aggressive until confronted. And then shies away from conflict, I guess. Yeah, and it, it, it's so funny because like even during this confrontation between the bull and the unicorn molly grew and schmendrick are kind of just like aside having a conversation and she's like do something and he's like i can't i can't do anything and i kept thinking about beagle as the author <laughs> like she's like you're the you control this do something about it and he's like i can't i just said the magic is just gonna work the way it's gonna work and then finally he acts like after she sort of convinces him no no, no you got to do something so he's like all right let's see what happens and then she turns into this human girl, and Molly's like, why did you turn into a girl? He's like, I don't know. just happened. And I'm like, you made a decision, Beagle, to do this. <laughs> it was the magic all along. Yeah, it's the magic all along. I don't know. And then that made me start thinking about Haggard, who we're gonna, we get to, I guess, later on here as, as sort of like an un, unfeeling, unpleasable uncaring public <laughs> and uh, Schmendrick is this bumbling wizard and he's like I'm gonna try and, and entertain you and all I can do is like card tricks and stuff and 
that just made me think about an author like trying desperately to publish and trying to get anyone to notice them and how you feel like you don't do real magic and you're trying to convince somebody. And this person is so jaded, right, as this sort of manifestation of audience. Like, I'm so jaded. I've seen everything. None of it makes me happy. Um and, and and cannot be pleased by your performance. <laughs> and, and when I started viewing this from this light, it was it was you know it was interesting. Maybe he was a critic, you know. Yeah, like a critic, exactly. Like uh, a that introduced a whole new angle to the story that I I was laughing at. And I started viewing everything through this lens. So within this this area, we meet Haggard. We get Mabrook. The, the wizard oh, who yeah. leaves after kind of realizing that Amalthea is actually a unicorn and realizing it's going to be Haggard's doom and everything. He does say that in the book too, right? Like he says the whole thing about this, this is going to be your doom. Uh, and then he, and then he departs. So that, that um, clarified some questions I think I had last week about Mabrook. And so sometimes that happens when it's my first experience with the story and like, maybe I need to revisit it to, to get some answers. Um, but I did still think there was an opening to where he could have come back as that cat. It could have happened. Possible. The pirate cat can speak too. So was the cat a, was the cat a pirate in the book, or is that an introduction for the to make it more fun? I guess for for kids in the movie. Yeah, I think so because the cat was just a cat, even a small cat. I think it was described as small, and I think the movie cat gets gives off this vibrations of being huge, yeah. massive cat big and it's got a peg leg and an eye patch and it's and it's all scraggly and old and speaks, speaks like a, a pirate yeah. <laughs> i uh something else that made more sense to me i think seeing it in, as a montage or something like that was the amalthea and prince lear sort of relationship developing and the amount of time that the the group spends at haggard's castle and how like i i feel like for whatever reason when i was reading it it seemed like it happened very quickly um, and something about seeing it as a montage helped me to like figure it all out and see like, okay, I can understand how like eventually she forgets enough of her original self to become this human and fall for Lear in a, in a way. They generally did a very good job at showing the passage of time through montages in this movie, also on the journey. So I like this, this feeling overall that time passes and they go through different landscapes for some time. And that's really good, I think. Yeah, I, I, I highlighted that particular moment, too, where there there's a montage of the unicorn traveling and the seasons mm-hmm. are changing behind the unicorn. Um, yeah, really good sequences. And they do it a couple times. Right. And then we get to Haggard actually confronting Amalthea and the whole thing about the eyes, the magic waning in the eyes. Again, something that I felt visually, I was like seeing it and understanding like, OK, she is now crossed the threshold to where she's like, she doesn't have magic in her eyes anymore. And that makes it to where she's kind of forgotten her former self. I can't I can't stop viewing this as the uh, relationship between artist and critic and audience, um, because he is looking at at um, her eyes. And when he first looks in there, he sees this. He sees the lilac forest. He sees true magic and it brings him joy. And he says, I don't see myself reflected. I see that. And, and, and to not see yourself, if he represents a critic and he's looking for something in his art and he doesn't want to see himself, he wants to see true magic. And then later over time, he starts to see himself in, in the, the unicorn's eyes um, that I don't know. Is that is that about like conformity to like what uh, audience might desire and how they think they want something? But then if you give it to them, they can be bored of it because it's just a reflection of their desires or the critical desire um, rather than something wholly original and unique. 
I don't know. I, I, I'm viewing all of this stuff through this lens now. <laughs> yeah, I think it's working out. Yeah, it sounds it sounds good to me. So the the whole castle, palace, whatever it is, um, has like faces twisted into the into the design, and it seems like it's the whole place is sort of in agony, and and is also despondent. And like that, I talked about how I, I felt like Haggard was depressed in the book, and um, I think that carries over here and. It, it, it evokes a feeling for this place that the unicorn gets trapped that I do think is quite effective. And it sort of is oppressive and it starts wearing down on the unicorn. Um, I thought that was all really effective. And, it, and I think it leans into those themes we've, we've discussed. But I, I also felt like this could kind of lose some audience, like as we talk about audience expectations, because... This feels very fairy tale. There's he only has like four people in his entire army. Um, I, I feel like if you're the kind of audience member who is used to fantasy in the like the the Tolkien uh, line, things make sense in a more like um, nuts and bolts uh, society fun- living and functioning as we expect it. Because if you start thinking, like, how does someone maintain an entire castle with four people? It's, like, basically impossible. And, like, how does he maintain power? And, like, it gets very, like, out there magician fairy tale kind of thing. And it, it's almost like um, what he's talking about, right? Like, the expectations versus what he wants to do. And how the story doesn't fit any of that neatly. And I'm wondering if there's, like, cultural differences in, in why maybe Germans are more open to this sort of thing. In the way that Americans, uh, maybe it's just more of a niche audience that that reacts well to it. I don't know. So what I can say, I remember liking this section of the movie a lot. So this feeling, this desolation, this very, very lonely place that is depicted, it just gets you somehow. So there's this endless sea that also looks lonely because there is no real life you can see. I mean, you know, in the course of the movie, it's there somehow, but it's all very vast and um, silent and yeah there is not a lot going on I think a few seabirds or something and that's it so this big loneliness I think is the feeling that comes across for me and then this gothic architecture going on with it so that's really I think it's a really impressive design so I wouldn't even think about the nuts and bolts of society <laughs> when right. I see this well and the, and the story does kind of flag like fairy tale early on to yeah. where like it doesn't want you to think of it like that. I don't think it it wants viewers or readers to to sort of approach it that way. Yeah. I wonder if like old style fairy tales are maybe just more prevalent in Europe um than than over here cuz like I I was able to recognize that's what it wanted me to do, but I think like if I wasn't as savvy a, a consumer of media, I maybe wouldn't have known that. I don't know, and I would have I would have been a little thrown by this movie. I think if I had seen it at a different point in my life. Well, that's a good point. Like as a kid, if you see this film, how do you know? How do you think it's right? Do you think it turns you off, or do you think that you're into the mystique of it all? I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to imagine because on one hand, you're more open as a kid to different kinds right. of story. Um, so it's hard to say for sure, but it maybe depends on what age I'm at. <laughs> I also think you fill in a lot of stuff. So for me, it really had a very distinct fantasy feeling, like. Somehow you get this impression the world is very big, it's depicting. I also didn't see a lot of references to our world, so I didn't have the, the impression that it was our world at all. Yeah, it felt very secondary to me here. Um, but there is a few mentions. like the, I think the, the train is still mentioned by oh, yeah. the, by the, the butterfly. butterfly. Yeah. 
<laughs> so there's a couple things. I mean, Robin Hood is a is a real figure, like, mm. but but there, I love the way um, the bandit captain says, "Robin Hood is the, is the myth. We're the reality." And I and that definitely made me think about those themes of like myth and reality and like what is myth and what isn't. And I kept thinking about like a multiverse of of story, if you will, where one legend in one world is the legend and we become the myth and then it gets reversed, right? Like in our world, the last unicorn is the myth, but the last unicorn's world, it's the reality and we're the myth. I don't know. Like just thinking about like it's like a matter of perspective on like what is myth and what is what is reality. So I think we've confirmed that the butterfly is like a realm walker or like some sort of like <laughs> interdimensional being. Well, that makes Schmenger kind of like that too because, okay, so I'm, this is a little bit of a weird aside. I don't know how many people are going to follow me here, but in Dragonlance by Margaret Race and Tracy Hickman, I should say the uh, original Chronicles. Have you read those books, Simone? Mm-hmm. Okay. So I, I think it's in that original series, but there's this character, Fizban, who gets mm-hmm. introduced, who is this like bumbling wizard who's also kind of like a Gandalf, kind of like a many other kinds of like uh, mentor type figures, but definitely also uh, like author stand-in, multiverse walker, references things that aren't like uh, in-universe. Um, and I kept thinking about Schmendrick and as like playing kind of a similar role in this story, like Schmendrick uh, is, is that author stand-in and seems to have some knowledge that, isn't in universe i guess i don't know i uh, we even kind of get that at the end of the novel they're like he's they're going into another story right mm. and uh, notably fizzband shows up in some of margaret waste tracy hickman's other novels that are not dragonlance but it's the same character i think maybe has a different name but you can tell it's the same character ben fizz i think he's oh, in one yeah. of the others yeah Okay, so I'm glad that you at least know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know how many of our audience will, but uh, yeah, that, 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 and that was making me think of it. That's that's interesting. So this last part here is when Molly finds out about the Red Bull's location, and they go to confront the Red Bull, and, and Amalthea, or the, the unicorn, ha- is having second thoughts, doesn't want to fight it, wants to go off, run off with Lear, and then ultimately they have their confrontation. And it leads to Lear sacrificing himself. The unicorn saves him after the fight. And then, you know, they go on their on their way. And Schmendrick and Molly watch the unicorn depart to, for the forest. So one of the coolest sequences that was not, as I remember, in the novel, but was brought to life in the film and I thought was, was a cool visual trick. Uh, Prince Lear is riding out on his horse with his lance uh, leading. And then there's a shot behind him of the narwhals in the ocean and they line up and you're in both are evoking the unicorn, but also like I, maybe the narwhals are unicorns. And then that, that unlocks something in my head of like, why are the, why are the unicorns being driven to the sea and trapped in the sea? And then I realized like maybe Peter Beagle was just like looking at narwhals and saying, what if these are unicorns that were driven into the sea and they've been transformed in some way. Um, and, and that made that connection for me in a way that I hadn't made um reading the book but also just was a cool visual moment right of like these two things both evoking the unicorns well and and like you said the like it was his shadow the shadow of the horse with the lance that was like falling onto the water that looked like a unicorn so yeah i thought that was really cool as well and i definitely didn't make the narwhal connection until it was in there and even the song was singing about narwhals at one point the narwhals are one of my favorite things in this movie because i loved whales when i was a kid (laughs) 
I still do. And I think it's really an in-joke about unicorns. I was wondering in the end that it's not in the book, but maybe it's still um, implied somehow. Yeah. Because the sea connection is there. Because the unicorn, um, unicorn myth is partially fueled by normal tooth or teeth that has been had been found. So in a lot of these curiosity collections in European castles, you have a narwhal tooth, and it's called a unicorn horn. Hmm. Right, and because those those horn quote unquote horns that narwhals have are actually teeth, right? Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. One yeah, one of the most fascinating animals out there. I remember I got to see a narwhal like pretty close up, and it was like it, it just doesn't seem like a. a creature that exists in our world. (laughs) (laughs) There are some wild things out there, especially under the sea. Um, So (laughs) I want to talk a little bit about Haggard because he, again, not only does he seem like a depressed critic, but also he is like unwittingly making himself miserable. And I, I kind of expected that to be explored a little bit more, but like his need to control is his own downfall, right? Like he... He talks about how like one of the most joyous experiences he ever had was when he encountered the unicorns for the first time. And his reaction is I have I must possess these things. I have to take them out of the place that I loved so much and was so struck by and I have to own them and I have to trap them so that I can view them whenever I want. And it's that like need to dominate and control that ultimately strips all the magic out of the world in some way and leads him to, cause he's like, I can, the, the only thing that makes me happy, but like all evidence to the contrary, he doesn't seem like he's ever happy. seems like he's miserable. So I, I kept thinking like we were going to get some sort of exploration of that. Um, and I guess we do only then in, in that it's his downfall. Like he's, he gets no redemption. He doesn't learn his lesson about what has made him so miserable. Instead, he's destroyed ultimately by that. Um, and the, and the unicorns bring him down, I guess when they're released. It's like colonialism, uh, imperialistic viewpoint on something, right? Like he has to make it his and that makes him happy, but only for a brief period of time before he feels he needs to conquer again or something. And there's a commentary being made on that. Yeah, it's also like kind of capitalistic, right? Like uh, this need people have like uh, to to own things, right? Like, Like you don't have to own everything. Right. right. <laughs> and like you got, if you can learn to let go of the need to possess and own things uh, all the time and just let it be itself. Uh, maybe that's maybe that's like a way to unlocking like true happiness. I don't know. The interesting thing is he also takes it away for all the others. Nobody can enjoy unicorns anymore. It's just him somehow, somewhat when they come out at the flood. It's very selfish. It's like a, ultimately if you, if you break it down to its like basis thing, it's like selfishness is what is uh, Haggard's downfall, I think, and, and what has led him to have this miserable life in so many ways. So just to talk a little bit about some of the things that are changed, I did notice we spent less time with Schmendrick as sort of wandering magician. Um, a lot of that is removed. And in the castle, uh, the the Lear is going on these quests, right, to, to please Amalthea. And um, there's just like, there's a lot fewer of them. We get the one dragon, and he mentions a few others that he goes on, but in the book we actually see more of that. Um, so there was a couple of smart ways where I thought they were able to reduce the story down and make it fit in this hour and a half. Um, while still f- not like it wasn't like I was missing a lot of this or I was like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe they cut all this huge section. Um, it felt like some smart condensing. And even if you remember in the book episode, 
some of that stuff with the raiders and the towns, like that was actually some of the parts where I felt like my interest was waning. So I thought it was a smart area to uh, to kind of condense the story down. Yeah, and something about it also makes him feel more isolated, Haggard, because there's no city, there's no town, it's just out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, and it re- and, and, uh, it removes some of the, like, who is uh, the father of Lear? Like, the story's not really interested in this version of, of answering that question. He's just an unknown boy that was found by Haggard and adopted, again, as another... I was curious to see if it would make me happy, but it didn't. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a great father. <laughs> the whole curse business is out too, like the, that Lear will bring down the castle, but I don't think I'm missing anything in this regard. Yeah, so some smart mm. decisions were made, and it sounds like maybe Beagle is behind a lot of it as he's writing the screenplay. So where we leave the characters, do you feel that they're simil- left in similar situations? Mm, I think that especially Schmendrick has a different um, state of being in the end because he never had this story of um, being immortal. This wasn't touched at all in the whole movie. And I think he just like, it's for him, it's a quest to learn true magic and that's all of it. And he has it in the end somehow. And just That's a great point because we spent so much time last week talking about the immortality and what it was, what it was talking about, what maybe you know, metaphor was being being written there. And in here, there's a lot less of it. There's there is one line where the unicorn says, like, never run away from immortal things because it'll draw their attention, which I found to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. And, and if we take it back to that meta text, I'm I'm that's just where I'm at right now. Um, Schmendrick in the book, right, he's he's immortal, but he has to give up his immortality and embrace becoming immortal before he's able to work magic. And if you look at that from an artistic point of view, the desire to write something that is immortal and that will live forever and be this great artistic achievement can maybe be stifling. And you have to let go of that pressure and say, I'm just going to be immortal. I'm just going to write a story. It'll live and die. It's not this immortal masterwork. And when you release that and you just embrace imperfection often that is the key to unlocking ourselves creatively right at least for me like i have to let go of the need to be perfect and embrace imperfection and say it's okay um and then the magic can actually work and i wonder if beagle is 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 exploring that here again not really in the movie a lot of that was kind of cut but um i think i think smartly it's maybe a little too subtle to 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 really get into for the film and they, and they needed to kind of simplify. Yeah. As adaptations tend to need to do. Yeah. Um, speaking of adaptations, uh, there is a live action version of the novel that has toiled in development hell over the years. Uh, it has reached various stages of pre-production at times, even with Sir Christopher Lee and Dame Angela Lansbury set to reprise their roles, um, you know, long ago. As of 2013, ongoing legal disputes stemming from the animated movie coupled with the budgetary issues have stalled the project, though author Peter S. Beagle has completed a new screenplay and still expresses hopes that the movie will one day be made. Interesting. I thought I heard something, I I referenced this earlier, about some sort of modern adaptation being in the works. Were you able to find anything like that in your research? Just doing some quick Googling uh, on Tor.com. Apparently, Beagle has a live action movie and stage musical of The Last Unicorn in the works. There we go. That's what I saw because I follow a tour on multiple uh, channels and I probably saw their article about that. So, yeah, fingers crossed. Maybe we will get some actual uh, further Last Unicorn stuff. 
Well, in wrapping up here, we have to do the thing that we always do, yeah. and that is decide which was better, the film or the story, the original source. Um, I think Luke and I will go first, and then we'll have you be the tiebreaker, Simone, if, if it comes to that. Okay, let's see. <laughs> so uh, one other part that I just wanted to touch on real quick is that at the end of the movie, it felt like it kind of sped through the denouement of the, of the story, and we, I was kind of sh- surprised by how quickly we went from, like, Bull is defeated to rolling credits. Um, and I think that reflects my overall feeling about the movie versus the book is, is as much as it is a smart adaptation and a beautiful one. Um, I found that the added layers that were present in the novel and the language, which I will admit I'm a sucker for, um, when I kept thinking about like the true soul of this piece for me, it kept going back to the book. And so as much as I did enjoy this, um, for me, I'm going to take the novel um, and and that just might be my own biases coming through because I do think this is a really good adaptation and I can see people uh, who maybe saw this first. Um, Maybe this is where they fell in love with the story and and will will disagree with me. But yeah, I I go to the novel personally. Yeah. So speaking of biases, I... um... I entered into this knowing that this this animated film was like pretty legendary and I I was barely aware of the project overall just just that the movie was well regarded and that it had a big legacy for animation and um, reading the story I, I have to give props to the layering that you're talking about the talk that we had about it, immortality the writer stand in things that that are potentially going on with Beagle I found that to be really interesting to dig into. But in this case, I'm going to take the film because of a couple different things. The animation is like world class. It's so it's so beautiful to look at. It's such a good representation of, of a really cool fantasy world. I think that it's so cool to see Japanese animators who would go on to be so influential work on on a story like this by Beagle and the way that it was, as Simone put in our first episode, it, it's like a step in a different direction for fantasy in a way that we don't get, which, you know, owes its credit to the source material. But between the animation and the score, I thought was really fun. The music was fun. It feels to me like the kind of movie that would really open up my eyes as a kid to like the possibilities of fantasy. And I think that that's something that'll stick with me. So I'll be the contrarian here and, and potentially the contrarian yeah. just to just to be biased for the for the film because I love animation. It's a pity that I have to be the tiebreaker yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because this is a super hard one for me. So the person I have been would probably for years and years have chosen the movie because that's what I saw as a kid and was one of my influential fantasy things all the time and really... It's so beautiful. The world it opens up is so impressive. And yeah, I agree. There should be more of that, right? Because I think nothing can, nothing can open worlds up like animation can and just draw them up from scratch, even if based on a novel. But the whole visual aspect, it's simply something that I think is um, a forte of animation. And we don't see it very often that it really plays out in this way. But... As I just um, enjoyed both versions again, I tend to take the book now because it's simply, it's the language and yes, the layering, the themes. I think for me, the movie version is a little bit too much simplified. So there is things dropping out, especially the immortality thing and the storifying thing that um, I miss in the movie now. So slight book preference. There were some decisions made, I think, to make it more accessible for a younger audience, too, right? Like, they had to be aware that that was ultimately their audience. 
And so there were at times you're talking about like the way the horn would ping and there was just certain things that seemed like, hey, we got to make sure the audience is, is uh, our younger audience is staying invested. <laughs> and, Speaking of the, the horn pinging, by the way, one of my favorite parts is that the, the unicorn is like an expert lock picker or like magical <laughs> lock picker. Just like point the point that horn in the, in the lock and it'll open right up. Perfect. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, that's, I think, a great place to leave. It sounds like the book is going to take it, but uh, with one holdout for the movie, which I think is appropriate. Uh, this has been so fun to have you on, Simone, and, and to be able to talk about The Last Unicorn. It, ultimately, it seemed like the perfect project. It seems like we got to get into to all of it. Um, if people wanted to read your work, which I highly recommend they do, Simone is an awesome writer, um, where can they find uh, you online and your work online? So my work, uh, I would recommend to read When We Were Starless and that you find on Clark's World online. It's a novelette, um, so maybe reserve an hour for it. Yeah, Hugo nominated. And um, I'm on Twitter as Her Lizardness, um, written together in one word. And um, uh, my webpage is uh, missnavigator.com, miss with double S and also one word. Oh, here's a question. I don't know if you get this question very much, but like, as a translator, um, if if there are people who uh, are in Germany and perhaps wanting to read a German translation you've done of an English work, what are what are some of the ones that you've worked on that that may they they may know? So my personal favorite is my uh, translation of Ken Scholes. Ken Scholes. I never know how you translate his name uh, or how you pronounce his name. Uh, the The Psalms of Isaac. It's called. So it's a fantasy series. Cool. Few few years in the past, but I think it's still a great book, great series. All right, and I I did I think I found a collection. Uh, it was uh, science fiction stories, and I put it in our bookshop. So if anybody wanted to purchase a copy of When We Were Starless, because I had the When We Were Starless in there, um, I put that in our bookshop, which is linked in our show notes. So you can check that out. Um, if you wanted to, um, it would be cool. You can also read the story for free, I think, on Clark's World's <laughs> website. <laughs> so full disclosure. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think they have a podcast episode even where you can listen to it. Yeah, that's pretty great. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for being on, Simone. This was great. And uh, yeah, we appreciate you uh, helping us go through the world of The Last Unicorn. Thank you for having me. It was really a blast. <laughs> Thank you. So if you will stick around to the very end of the episode, we're going to announce our next project. Uh, But if you enjoyed this episode, uh, let us know in the form of a rating and review on whatever app you chose to listen on. It's a good way to get the word out and to get more listeners. uh, So we'd appreciate that. Also, check out our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash ink to film. And we have many different tiers on there. But for just $2 a month, you can get our bonus content where we usually do adaptation adjacent things that we've covered before, but maybe some other version of it or a sequel. And recently we did Luke's short story that was published in the Buckman Journal and it was also recorded on the the Overcast podcast. Yeah, and we got to talk about like what we would do as an adaptation, which I think uh, is very appropriate for this podcast. That was a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, if you wanted to check this out, check that out, that would be great. Um, also, you can connect with us on social media. We are at Ink to Film on Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, and now on TikTok. I just created a TikTok uh, account for the podcast, and I'd love to have you connect with us on there. We even have a few little videos we've put out. Yeah, and also thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. And thank you again to Simone one more time for coming on for this entire project. Uh, It was so great and such a cool perspective 
and to hear about all the translation stuff. I, I don't. I thought that was really neat. Um, so thank you one more time to Simone. So now it's time to announce our next project. We are going to be tackling Spiderhead uh, by George Saunders, which is a short story that has been adapted into like a hundred million dollar Netflix film. Really strange. Uh, I don't even really know what to expect out of this. I have read some Saunders before, which we'll get into next week. Um, But I'm excited to introduce you to the author because he is a really cool author, in my opinion. And, uh, you know, we'll be able to look at that and say like and and see how they're able to adapt it into this film. I I have no idea if it'll be good or not, but we will uh, react to it next week. Yeah, I know nothing about the story. I heard about the film coming out. Um, Did you watch the trailer? We'll see. No, I haven't watched the trailer. We'll see where they <laughs> if they allocated the budget correctly. Purely blind. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. I, I mean, it's a good way to go into it. Uh, all right. Uh, so thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep adapting. Keep adapting.